So we're doing a possession game and, and I've got to like very close to one of the fans, got the ball past it. But as I've got the ball again, I'm hearing monkey sounds. And I'm thinking, nah, surely not, like, this, these are my fans. Got it again, I'm hearing ooh, 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 ooh again. I'm like, oh. So like, I've just looked back at him and he's like shouting stuff in Italian, like, like screaming like, that was the first time I said that I've been like overwhelmed by racism. most of us, being on the receiving end of hate is a frightening and isolating experience. For athletes and officials working in professional sport, it's just another day at the office. My name is Ben Welch and this is the Performance Lab Podcast, a new show that explores the behaviours of leading athletes and coaches to give you the blueprint for success both on and off the pitch. Today you'll be hearing from elite athletes about how they handle hate and we'll be using their experiences to help you manage hate in your life. Hate is a delicate subject at the best of times, but in today's social political climate, driven by the unrelenting beat of social media, it sometimes feels like hate's the only thing going on in the world. This is a pretty timely topic when you think about our sporting culture, but just our social political culture around the world. Dr. John Sullivan is a sports scientist and clinical sports psychologist who has worked with a number of Premier League clubs, NFL teams and US and UK Special Forces. He also happens to live less than two miles from the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. Hate, one of the things that is really powerful about it is it becomes chronic. So we got to look at all the things that make it chronic. And in some of the things in our modern life that make it chronic, and we have some evidence on this. So if you change the media stream for a group of individuals, so if they're listening to something, whatever dynamic social politically it is, but it, it, you listen to a stream of media consistently that propagates hate, lies and disinformation guess what happens to the person it's not surprising the main aim of this podcast is to help you understand and deal with hatred we'll also be posing a controversial question is hate an essential ingredient that brings much needed edge to the sporting spectacle but first of all we have to convince our interviewees to actually talk about hate i don't really like the word hate it's more dislike um i like to put it because hate can be quite hurtful. That word never come into my head when I was playing football. It's difficult to pinpoint um, any sort of, you know, what do I recognise as hatred? I don't like that word. To me, it means obviously the opposite of love. And if you think about the feelings that you have towards someone that you love, it's literally the reverse of that. So it's a, it's a very strong feeling, obviously, and one that I don't really use too often. As you can hear, hate a hot potato. Dr Sullivan explains why. When you ask people about hate, no one wants to admit to it. It's like trying to study sex. Everyone conflates it. Golf and sex are similar. Everyone golfs more than they actually do, and everyone has sex more than they actually do. Again, there are certain things as human beings we don't want to admit to, because we know the definitions, and we know they're not socially acceptable. So how does this subversive feeling actually function in us? What physical and chemical changes take place as hate takes hold? So typically people we see we take things in visually. And typically when we're pattern recognition around hate, it has to do with being powerless and something malicious is happening to us or people around us. It's a strong pattern visually. And then it goes through the emotional centers of the lower brain, the brain stem, which has some of our earliest areas of how we would manage emotion. Then we'd go into our limbic system, our more modern presentation of how we manage emotion. 
And then it moves into two deeper centers of the brain, the insula, which has to do with, you know, kind of context and circumstances, right? A level setting of anger and processing of what's the situation and what's the solutions. And then ironically, it goes into an area called the Putney, which has to do with motor dynamics. So you are fight or flight, you are in the SOS system of our typical kind of defensive structures of the brain. But it's too early to call it the hate circuit, because ironically, it's the very same areas that light up when we're in love. Apparently, managing these primordial feelings isn't something evolution made a priority. For our interviewees, people who have balanced on the very sharp end of hatred, they had to create ways of receiving and processing hate to get it out of their system before it stopped them doing their jobs. For former Watford, West Brom and Birmingham City footballer Paul Robinson, being hated was empowering. What did it make you want to do when you felt that hate towards you? The only person that was going to put me off my game was myself because I'd lost concentration and I'd lost focus in what I needed to do as a person. For me, the best way was, was to get one over on them, was, was to win the game or to play, to play the, as well as I could as a person and for them people to realise, actually, do you know what, he is a good player. And I'm not going to really going to say anything now because we've won 2-0. So you just find that person, the one that was giving you the abuse and you'd won a game, you'd go over to them and start waving at them or blow them a kiss. Just little things like that would get under their skin and you could see them getting irate on the touchline and they'd be like wanting to climb over the barriers. But deep down, it's part and parcel of, like you say, of the game that you've given me abuse for 90 minutes. We've won the game, so I'm going to go up, come over and give you a little bit of loving and see how you like it. I earned a few red cards over my career for the way that I played, but that was my passion and that was me inside thinking that I could win the ball every time that I was going for it when I knew deep down I maybe shouldn't have gone for that tackle. Never in my head would I would buy, I'd be thinking, oh, there's a little bit of hate coming in here and I'm, I'm going to go straight through this player knowing that I could hurt him. It, you, it would never cross your mind. Robinson was a combative player whose coping mechanism made him feel at home in hostile atmospheres. But as he explains... Hatred can be crippling for some players, especially when it comes from your own fans. I've seen players want to get off the pitch quickly, yeah. Just because they, they, they can't cope. Maybe the words that were directed at them were a bit insensitive and it was a line that people had crossed, which we do know that it happens in football. I think you tend to accept it from the away fans just because they want to get under your skin. But when, when it's your home fans, I think it becomes more personal. I remember we just lost 8-0 to Bournemouth at home and I went and clapped the fans after the game in appreciation of, we've just lost 8-0, and in my head I'm thinking, what are you doing, Robbo, you idiot? Like, you're going over to the fans and you've just been battered 8-0 by Bournemouth and you want to go and clap the fans. So I, I expected that hatred towards me, and, and I got it full, full there right in the face. And I knew my kids would get it on that day as well, my wife. So, yeah, my, my wife was very good at protecting the kids and explaining to them the right way in, in, in different scenarios of what might happen when the game's going ugly. But what about when you're not in the controlled environment of the sports stadium? What if you're walking down the street with your family and hate rises up? I experienced it once uh, walking my kid down the street, a man on the opposite side. I don't know where he was from, but obviously I was playing for West Brom at the time. Whether he was a Villa fan, a Birmingham fan, I don't know. He abused, he abused me from across the road in front of my kid. So I had to quickly move my child to my side so I was protecting him because I wasn't sure whether he was going to cross the road or not. Luckily for us, he, he carried on just walking down the other side. That moment where hate presents itself is precarious. You're dropped into that base fight or flight response moment and your mind is caught in a grappling match between your instincts and your conscious mind. The key for these athletes is making sure the conscious mind prevails more often than not. Without fault, there is no control. Without control, everything in the professional sporting arena is lost. Of course, harnessing the hate 
converting negative energy into a positive performance is the holy grail. Now, can anger be used as a fuel in sports is often what comes because they're almost cousins. They're not exactly the same emotion. And some would argue hatred's not an emotion because it actually leads to or has to lead to not just a, a felt experience, but an acting on where anger can be used as a fuel because emotions are fuel. You can help athletes use anger as fuel, but you don't want them to use it long-term because it's not sustainable. Because if you think about it, it's many against one. And that, if we think about our own, all of our own personal experiences, it, when we're in those situations where it's many against one, it's very intimidating. Turning criticism and anger from the stands into a positive is one thing. Managing the very impact of a racist attack is another. That's an assault on you as a human being, not as an athlete. And this form of hate crime is on the rise. Last year, Kick It Out reported 446 incidences of abuse during the 2019-20 campaign, a 42% increase on the previous season, despite hundreds of matches being played behind closed doors or postponed because of the pandemic. Reports detailing racist abuse went up by 53% from 184 to 282. Huddersfield town ringer Rolando Ahrens knows what it feels like to be on the receiving end of such vile abuse. In 2018, he was sent out on loan by Newcastle United to Hellas Verona in Italy and then Czech side Slovlan Librec. During both loan spells, he was the target of monkey noises, first by his own fans and then by the opposition's. The Italian was strange. We, we'd obviously been struggling. I signed in January when uh, I think we were uh, in the relegation zone. Obviously, you understand fans are upset and they, they want the team to do better, which sometimes create a, creates a hostile environment. So they came over to the training ground walked through security, no one saying nothing to them. <laughs> walked in, about a thousand people watching us train, shouting abuse, shouting abuse. So we're doing a possession game and, and I've got to like very close to one of the fans, got the ball past it. But as I've got the ball again, I'm hearing monkey sounds. And I'm thinking, nah, surely not, like, this, these are my fans. Got it again, I'm hearing ooh, 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 ooh again. I'm like, oh. So like, I've just looked back at him and he's like shouting, stuff in Italian, like, like screaming, like, that was the first time I said that I've been like overwhelmed by racism. And the next time it happened was in Czech Republic, just uh, whilst I was playing a game, but it was the away fans. I understood that one a bit more. It didn't feel good. Well, the one in Italy just didn't sit right with me. You know what I mean? Aaron's laser focus during the game enabled him to stay on task and help his team. But there was no escaping the pain and hurt once the match was over and he was left to record the incident. I can only speak for myself, innit? When I'm on the pitch, I'm locked in. I've had people shout, you effing this, that, blah, 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 this, whatever. And you hear it and it just goes through the, your other ear. At the time that thing happened in Czech Republic, it was only to, after the game where I kind of felt sad. During the game, I was like, getting on with it. I think we might have been losing 2-1 at the time. So I'm locked in, I'm thinking, we need to get a result. Like, I need to do something more. It was only after the game where I've gone back and I was like, wow, that's actually very sad that like, people actually feel this way to like, towards me. So I mean, people that I don't know, like I'm here just representing the team and myself, do you know what I mean? You don't know me, I don't know you. And the first thing you do is racially attack me. But when you're black, the monkey sounds is personal. That's an attack on me, not the anyone. Do you know what I mean? That's personal, that's on me. And when I get the ball, I hear it. When the, I pass the ball, I don't hear it. Like that was the first time I was proper overwhelmed. So that when you said that question, it takes me back to how sad and how hurt I felt. Racism is a topic you'd expect to come up in a podcast about hate. When under eight's football popped up, that took us by surprise. 
Arsenal and England legend Kelly Smith told us about playing for Garston Boys and how she was regularly singled out by opposition parents. Remember, Kelly was only eight years old when this was happening. I was playing for Garston Boys, my local team. I couldn't play on any girls' teams because there were no girls playing and I was the only girl. I looked like a, a boy. I was a bit of a tomboy, had short hair, so I fit right in. Obviously, the, the boys on my team knew that I was a girl, but it was the opposition that uh, didn't know that I was a girl. So it was the parents of the opposition that I was playing against. I used to hear stuff on the sidelines all the time. Hack her down, fowler, break her legs. She shouldn't be playing. It's a boys' sport. So hearing that as a young girl footballer growing up, it was really quite hurtful. But I didn't let it affect me. I just found that I just loved playing and loved playing with my friends. I actually used it against them. I wanted to score as many goals as possible and set up as many goals as possible and help my team win to shut the parents up on, on the side. So, yeah, I think I used it as a, a tool and it fire, had more fire in my belly to try and shut them up on the sidelines because I felt like it was unfair because I didn't understand why they were being so hurtful towards me because I was only a kid at the time and I'd done nothing to them. I was just playing with, with my friends and playing a game that I enjoyed. Who was supporting you through that at that point? Yeah, it's just my dad on the sidelines. He would be hearing it and he was quite a feisty character. He was upset that he was hearing that. But after, after the game, you know, we'd sit and we'd talk about it and he'd just say, block it out. Don't, don't bite, don't do anything. Just ignore it uh, because you're a good player and that's why they're saying it. They don't want you to play because they know that you're one of the best players on the pitch and they're trying to get into your head and, and, and affect you. And I was like, yeah, it's a good point. So I just tried to like block it out. To have that kind of attitude, that, that's quite amazing. I mean, was that something that your dad instilled in you? Did you feel like it was something that you naturally had or something that you learned from someone else? I think my dad instilled that in me um, from a young age. Obviously, I was upset when I first heard it. I was devastated. I was crying. But then my dad, you know, sat me down and told me the reasons why they were saying it. So I just took that on board um, and tried to, to use that hatred to make me a better player and fire, fire me on. So, yeah, from very early doors, I faced adversity. And I think that just made me the player that I was because I would face other stuff throughout my career moving forward. And I just, I think that helped me develop as a player because I had that grit, that determination from hearing that early on that I shouldn't be doing it. Well, why shouldn't I be doing it? I'm good at it. Just because I'm, you think I'm the wrong sex, it's not, it's not going to stop me. Smith went on to become England's record scorer of 46 goals in 117 games. She won nine major trophies of Arsenal and was awarded an MBE in 2008. A year later, she came third in the FIFA World Player of the Year. Sadly, the abuse didn't stop once Smith retired from playing. Her move into punditry brought a predictable backlash from the male-dominated world of football fandom. I received a lot of um, abuse on Twitter. When I first started out um, doing the BT Sports score um, and, and being on TV and talking about men's football, I got told to get back in the kitchen, to get back doing the ironing, that I was, didn't know what I was talking about. I shouldn't be working in the men's game. Who am I? Who is Kelly Smith? And when you first see all that written in front of you, you know, it's, you, you're scrolling down, you see the, the little blue dot that you've got some notifications and you scroll down and you see that. And it's, I really was affected by it mentally. But then um, I was like, well, why, do I, why, am, why am I letting these people win? Why, why are they stopping me from using social media? Um, so eventually, you know, I turned it on a positive spin and started to think, well, why don't let it affect me or block them? Don't, you know, just got, it's got to go in one ear and out the other ear uh, because I don't know who these people are. And then I go onto their profile and they got three followers. So it just then put it into perspective for me. 
Um, they're just trying to get at you. They've got nothing better to do in their in their time. We've talked a lot about the hated so far, but what about those dishing it out, specifically fans? Why do they hate? But these questions go back to, if you think about why did we get into world wars? I mean, there has to be a level of hatred and there's a layer to this. This is a complex thing, but it starts from the in-group, out-group. So tribes, we talk about tribalism now as much more of a social political thing, but that's how we are wired from birth. If you're in a group and you have delineated structures of language, you have cultures and certainly you know, traditions that you go through. You have communications, most of them probably not honest. And you're building a platform of group dynamics where this is us, this is who we are. And any win, loss, or impediment is now an infraction on our safety. So it really ties into some really tribal things that allows us to survive as people. What you're touching on too is from a sports standpoint, what do we call people who watch sports? Fans. That's short for fanatics. So when you add gasoline <laughs> to a fire of fanatics and you build up this social political rhetoric, it's no wonder we have this. If it's tribalism you're after, there are few greater rivalries in world football than Manchester United versus Liverpool, and few people that know more about it than journalist and editor of fanzine United We Stand, Andy Mitten. So I grew up in a part of Manchester where... I was basically indoctrinated to believe that Scousers were, were bad. My father refused to go to Liverpool, not even to get a passport. Andy is also the author of Mad For It, a celebration of football's greatest rivalries from around the world. In an act of extreme bravery or lunacy, depending on how you look at it, Andy snuck onto the cop to watch a Liverpool United game. It was an experience he'll never forget. I went to, to Anfield and I never really got nervous. I, I had lads who sort of kept an eye out for me. And I walked into the cop and I had a few lads who were with me and they basically said, you're by yourself from this point. There's not a lot we can do if if you act up and make a knob out yourself. But I'm not stupid either. I've been in dangerous places in the name of journalism. I went into the cop and the game started and you never know with Man United Liverpool, It it can go either way. And they sang you'll never walk alone, loudly. And, and I didn't. I just thought, I'll die on this hill if I need to. I'm not, I'm not singing that. And I just pretended to read uh, a programme, put my head down, didn't sing it. Game started. Could see a couple of people looking at me and I, I'd been clocked. I was envious of my friends in the United End opposite, 3,000 of them. I loved it when I heard them. Manchester! Because it's hard to be heard among 45,000 as it was then. And right at the end of the game, right in front of me, John O'Shea scored the only goal of the game. My head just wanted to explode, but I couldn't. I would have been attacked. I would have been assaulted. So I just ran out. I looked, the United players were celebrating. The away end was going crazy. I just had to run out. Run out the cop, run onto Walton Brett Road, just full and pumped up of adrenaline because I'd just seen a last minute winner. And I got in my car and sat down, put the radio on, just went, yes, yes, yes. And looked and immediately to my right, sat in the front room of a terraced house, because these houses had no gardens. You would, he was like three meters away from me. I saw a guy see me and he basically said something to me, which was not, oh, you must be coming to see 
Liverpool City of Culture, it was get out of here now. And I started the car, drove off, and within a few minutes was heading east again, buzzing for several reasons. One had survived, two United had won, three or four, I've got a great article here. No one will believe this. You can hear it in Andy's voice, and I could see it in his face as we chatted over Zoom. The rivalry enthralled him. That deep-rooted hatred, sprinkled with enough mutual respect to keep things amicable, is what distinguished his relationship with the Liverpool fans from any other opposition club. I love the edge at those games. I remember one of the journalists from the Daily Star criticising me maybe 15 years ago, saying he shouldn't be encouraging the edge at these games. It's bad. This nastiness is a bad thing. But I like the edge. And I'm not saying songs about Munich or Hillsborough. That's beyond the pale to me. But I love that geographical, civic footballing rivalry and there can be really good moments of humour and one of you is going to walk out the ground gutted win or lose but I think the world is better for for that edge for that atmosphere yeah I, I don't like the word because if I see people I hate them they don't mean it with the the viciousness that hate can sometimes entail in other situations a live or die friends of my mum's I hate Man United Andy it doesn't mean that he wants Man United to end. But if I'm saying that enmity, that edge, and you're saying it's hatred, I think that football is better for, for having that. I don't want a situation where a Disney-fied world where everything is sweetness and nice. And I think at the moment, families do go to that game and can enjoy it. The viciousness has gone. And I think that's a good thing. And I think it's in a, the rivalry is in a good place at the moment. But what I've seen in the last 10 years is football tourists coming to Man United Liverpool games. And I don't like it. That takes away from it. Coming up to me outside the ground, asking where a certain stand is because they've got enough money to pay however much they've paid on the black market for tickets. Liverpool and Man United half and half scarves. No, I'm sorry. I just can't see the logic in it. Maybe people will say it's only a scarf. Well, they're entitled to their view and I'm entitled to mine. Andy isn't alone in his appreciation of this edge. Kelly Smith felt hate brought out the best in the players and put on a show for the fans. It added to the spectacle. I think I, when I was playing, that hatred, I, lo- I used to love it because it used to drive everyone on. It used to drive the fans on. I think, I think it should be a part of the game today because it makes the fans enjoy the game even more when the tackles are flying in and you see the fans, uh, the, the players celebrate when, when they're scoring. Um, yeah, I, I think it's missed in the game today. I really do. One thing we've experienced far too much this year is sport taking place without fans. In early 2021, The Guardian ran a story entitled Anger Management. Studies suggest lack of fans has made players calmer. About how researchers from the University of Salzburg studied 20 Red Bull Salzburg matches, 10 before lockdown and 10 after. On average, the study found that there were 19.5% fewer arguments or altercations in matches about fans. Plus, the referee was only drawn into 25.2% of these incidents, as opposed to 39.4% when fans were in the stands. Robinson believes players of a nervous disposition have been liberated, but the thought of a player enjoying games about fans leaves him cold. And how sad is that? That's sad that football players actually feel that they, they can't go out and entertain thousands of people that want to go and watch and play football. Yes, they're going to get abused by the opposition fans sometimes, but it's your job. Like, and I, I do, I, I speak to a lot of players now and, and talk to them and it's hard. It, it, it's hard hearing them say that as well, saying that they prefer playing behind closed doors just because they have freedom and they, have, they can excel in different areas without that tension of someone jumping on their back. 
when they make a mistake. Them players that I've seen playing without fans in, I'm going to watch them closely when the fans are back in to see how they change their game. Former Premier League and FIFA referee Mark Halsey also thinks officials have been given room to breathe in the absence of fans. I think that we may have a problem in the future when the fans do come back because the referees have been so used. I mean, you take, take Paul Tierney last week when he refereed Liverpool Man United. That game was not the game that I refereed three or four times. The intensity wasn't there. The, and, the, and the fact is, you know, the fans lift the players and the players, you know, the intensity goes up, the temperature goes up and there's challenges flying in. So I think it'd be, it'd be interesting to see how the referees react. When fans do return to games, it will be a shock to the system for both players and officials. When they hear the first roar of the crowd, a surge of energy will flow through their bodies, reminding them they're back in the real world once more. So noise, really loud noise. If you think about really loud noise, we have a reaction to it. As if, if you have kids and there's infants, they'll notice you have a startle response. So the reason why we have the response is a very important nerve is only five millimeters away from the inner ear work. So the nerve that connects the brain, the heart and the stomach called the vagus nerve. And so when you raise noise level in a stadium, not only do players heart rate raise, coaches, but the fans do. So what you have is a dynamic of actually being on a precipice. One, you're using more energy, but could things falter and tip into a point where people are angry, but then it starts to move into some higher dynamics. As a referee, Halsey was a figure of hate thanks to his job. Managers, players, fans, he got it from all sides. To control potentially explosive games, he had to quickly assert his authority and block out the noise. I've refed the Manchester derby, the, you know, Liverpool. Uh, there's no greatest rivalry than um, than Liverpool Man United, and, and and I think the hatred of 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 the two fans. But I think one that topped that was when I refereed the West Midlands derby, Aston Villa v Birmingham City. I mean that that was that was intense. That was. I remember that like that night. It was a Monday night live on on Sky, and oh, we had all see all all things happen. We had all sorts. We had three sending offs, <laughs> but I had to because that. I mean, like, there were like, there were things that I just couldn't manage in that game, and we had fans running on the pitch, and you know you could feel the. When I come up to do the warm, when I come out to do the warm up, you just could feel the intense, you know, the intensity of of the crowd, and you knew that would do something to the players. And I just said to the guys, listen. We've got to be on our metal tonight, guys. We have got to be on our metal tonight. And and it, and it was it was a, it was a tough, tough, tough game. And you know afterwards, I think we I think I think we were held behind for about two and a half hours because of the trouble that was going on outside. And I remember we had to have a, a police escort all the way back to our hotel. Given the amount of abuse he received, Halsey is surprisingly philosophical and understanding. He reframed hate with phrases like "They've paid their money," "They say what they want," or "It's shop floor talk." The reframing helped him protect himself, but things changed in 2012. Halsey, who was diagnosed with throat cancer in 2009, but returned to refereeing in March 2010 after successful treatment, showed John Joe Shelby a red card and awarded a late penalty to Manchester United, from which Robin Van Persie scored to secure a 2-1 win over Liverpool at Anfield. After the game, Twitter turned dark. One tweet read, I hope Mark Halsey gets cancer again and dies, while another said, Mark Halsey should have died of cancer. As a top referee, you've got to be mentally tough, mentally strong, and you've got to let it go in one ear, out the other ear. And I think I think the next time I really face some bad, bad, oh well, horrendous social media comments, was, wasn't just about me. It was about 
my family, my wife, um, who was battling leukemia and I'd just recovered from cancer and my young daughter. And that's when I refereed at um, Liverpool Man United and I sent off uh, John Joe Shelby. And that's where I really experienced um, a hate campaign. I can accept it, I can put up with it. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm mentally tough, I'm mentally strong. Things don't bother me. Um, but some of the things that were said you know, about me, that didn't bother me. It was when my wife was involved and my daughter and some of the, the comments were, were horrific. We might not want to admit it, but hate exists. It always has. It's not something we should encourage or celebrate, but all of us have felt it at one time or another. Maybe you're feeling hate right now, as you recall moments, beliefs or relationships that stir up negative energy. Stop. Take a breath and keep listening. All our interviewees have a take on the best way to manage the hate. If someone is so entrenched in hate, move them to not hate anymore. And part of it is to really slow things down. See this context, really start to feel it as anger, because anger doesn't hurt anyone. It's just an alert system to know what's happening and how do I work on it. So it's really slowing things down and putting context on it. That's how people hate. How did Nelson Mandela come out and not hate his other? 18 years in prison in Robben Island. And how did he not come out and hate the other? Because he understood over time that if he didn't understand the context of those who were among him in his community, then he could not bridge the gap to have empathy and then be angry about things, but then seek solutions. And if there was ever an example of bringing hate to a context that's constructive, Nelson Mandela is that. The other thing I would say is always, and I mentioned earlier, but it's critically important Hate, we do know we can disengage hate by creating an understanding of circumstance and context. So, you know, give you again live examples. Why do we see war veterans who will go back to the country that they were fighting and meet some of the soldiers they were fighting on the other side? Because they've come to an understanding of the context, the circumstances, and then you can have empathy for the other. So, if you're feeling hatred, it is then your job to step away and really try to either individually or with others, try to put yourself in that other person's shoes. Finding your own response and method for dealing with hate is key according to Rolando Ahrens. Nobody should tell a black person how to deal with being racially abused. Because I've seen a lot about that few people come in and say, no, you shouldn't walk off. You shouldn't. It's air. Like, I don't believe in that. You do what you feel is appropriate because I'm sure if whoever been attacked on how they feel like they need to be attacked. So you shouldn't be told how you should respond to a situation and that. I would advise someone to speak out on it because I wish in hindsight I would have done that. But I can only speak on my experiences. Kelly Smith wants every young girl out there to know they have the power to use hate as a fuel for positive action. I would say that football is is for everyone, not just boys. Anybody can play the game. I think if you've got dreams and ambitions to progress in the game, then follow your dreams, tune all the outside chatter out and just concentrate on yourself and, and try and be the best that you can be as an individual. Try not to listen to the, the negative stuff outside. And if you do, then talk about it uh, because you know that you're a, a good player within your own abilities. And yeah, just follow your dreams, really. Don't let anybody tell you any different. Mark Halsey wants young referees to have the courage and confidence to take a stand against abusive spectators. I've said to a referee, if this ever happens, you stop the game, you go to the, the home manager, or the manager concerned, of the, who belongs to the, you know, the, 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 whoever the team it is, whoever the spectators belong to, and you say to that manager, if this continues, I'll report your football club and I'll report the spectators to whoever the county FA is. And if it carries on, it continues... I will abandon this game 
and I will, I will go home. And that's, and that's the step you've got to take. If you're receiving abuse on social media, Paul Robinson recommends a three-step response, block, report and talk. So if you feel that the messages that you're getting are crossing a line, you have to report them straight away. Talk about it. Pull someone to the side and talk about it. How do you deal with this? Block them. I love pushing the block button. It's fun because then they'll go and set up another account and try and accept you. But you realise, hold on a minute, I've just blocked you from this account, so you're not going to join me on that one. important that you talk about it and then you try and move on from it. If there's one thing I learned while making this podcast, it's this. Hate is complicated. Its complexity is what makes it so hard to manage whether you're giving or receiving. Explain. Articulating the why is often impossible. Talk about. See our interviewee's initial reluctance to talk on the subject. Hate means different things to different people. Hate comes in many forms like racism, sexism and homophobia amongst others. But then you have this bizarre anomaly. Sport. Hate can play a leading role in bringing that competitive edge. That sense of spectacle to something that otherwise would just be another sporting contest. What's clear from all our interviewees is that hate is deeply personal. How you receive it and how you process it are unique to you. That's something we all need to remember when we come across hate in our lives. There's no one size fits all way of handling it. And don't forget, it's complicated. I hope that you found useful advice in this podcast. That's been my aim from the outset. Thank you for listening to the first episode of the Performance Lab podcast. Please like, share, subscribe and leave a review. Come find us on social media and give us a follow so you can stay up to date with all our latest content. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for episode two, which is coming soon.